Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We've got Shiloh Brooks back. Hey, Shiloh. Hey, thanks for having me. And we are going to be doing book five of The Education of Cyrus by Xenophon. And just to kind of share the load to do the yeoman's work, uh, I'll actually be doing a summary and then teeing up Shiloh and Jeff for some opening questions. And I'm, it's, I'm leaving that open. We're not really sure. I'm not really sure after having chatted with them before we started. So it's question with one of those parentheses around the S. Anyway, book five. Um, Cyrus in chapter one is giving stuff away and specifically a girl, right? Um, jacket guy appears, who we talked about in a previous um, a previous episode uh, and is put in charge of keeping track of the Susan woman, which Shiloh talked about last week as somebody we should keep our eyes on. Uh, in chapter two, Gobris, um, Cyrus travels to Gobris's castle and Gobris basically gives everything to Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus decides to march on to Babylon. Uh, in chapter three, we get a lot around marching orders and the importance of kind of keeping your troops uh, in specific orders and also knowing their names. Uh, in chapter four, Gadates is ambushed. Cyrus saves him. Uh, and then chapter five, the dialogue between Cyrus and Cyaxerxes, where Cyaxerxes actually weeps with embarrassment seeing Cyrus's great success. So not as good a summary as you guys usually do, but I'm trying to trying to do more than just occasionally throw a really bad joke in. So Shiloh, you had a opening, opening question. Yeah. Um, my observation here uh, with this book, following up on my um, uh, note last time to keep an eye on the Susan woman. And also you're going to want to do that for, uh, for next time as well um, is the following. So we've reached the center of the book. Um, and there is a entire book, book five, which I would argue, or at least it seems to me, is devoted to the love. And I think it's interesting that the, the opening chapter of book one is explicitly uh, devoted to love. Uh, there's an argument about love. The concluding chapter, chapter five of, of book five, is also um, in a way about love. And so far as Sykes Ari's um, tells Cyrus that... Uh, he feels like a, a woman and, and a wife who's been, um, uh, you know, who's, who, who isn't receiving the proper love um, that he deserves. And so uh, in the middle, there's a very interesting character introduced named Gadatus. And Gadatus has some love problems. Namely, he's been castrated. Um, and so it seems to me, oh, and then we also meet uh, Gabrius. Gabrius offers up his daughter for the love of anyone. Um, who uh, who might win her. And so it seems to me that there are uh, pointer after pointer in the, in the direction of love in, uh, in, in book five. And I'd like to try to unpack what Xenophon is trying to teach us because as we saw earlier in our readings, um, Cyrus once cried when the subject of love came up. And here it is again in the middle of the book. And of course, we know that Socrates, Xenophon's teacher, was claimed to be a teacher of erotics. So something really important is going down here. And so I'd just like uh, for us to, to, to talk through that. 
Yeah, that's uh, entirely with my inclination, Shiloh. I do think this is the love book. And it did occur to me that the more I thought about it, the more it seemed like we were getting variations on a theme of reflections about love or eros. Um, and so maybe I thought one way we could start is just by looking at chapter one, uh, which consists of two parts. Uh, there's the dialogue that you mentioned between Cyrus and Eraspus um, about love, uh, and it deals with the situation of the Susan woman and who's going to keep an eye on her and whether Cyrus is going to come and see her. That's the part that Brian mentioned. But the other half of chapter one um, of book five is this uh, discussion that Cyrus has to have with his troops in order to keep them together. Right, so Cyrus's offensive has slowed because Babylon is in the way, and it's not clear how he's going to take Babylon. And uh, now that the enemy has retreated into a fortress, um, the military offensive is kind of ground to a halt. And uh, arguably, this is the time when what was originally a defensive force should disband. Um, uh, but Cyrus stages a discussion where he is able to persuade. Uh, his allies to stick with him. In fact, uh, where they say that they would rather stick with him and keep on looking at him than uh, take the risk of going home. And it seems to me that those two halves of chapter one actually both have to do with the same subject. They both have to do with love and that love might be running through the veins of Cyrus's whole enterprise in a way that we haven't adequately um, uh, you know, appreciated by this point. So can I just start with this? What did you all think of, of um, Cyrus's argument with uh, his friend Araspus about going to see the Susan woman? Cyrus says he won't do it because he's afraid he'll catch fire and he'll just sit there. Uh, does that seem like a serious argument? Is, is he really afraid of her? He, I mean, you know, it, <clears throat> Oh, he seems to be, I mean, his claim, as you say, is that love is um, involuntary. So this is, the, this is the word that's important. Erasmus says love is voluntary. You I can control who I love at any given time. Uh, and, he, and Cyrus says, no, no, son, it's not. It's, it's very involuntary. I can't go see her or else I'll be driven mad. Um, and he, he, they engage in a dialogue. It's worth pointing out before we get too deep in this conversation that there is a parallel to this in Xenophon's memorabilia where um, uh, Socrates is told that the most beautiful woman that's ever come to Athens has come to town. And a friend comes to Socrates, I believe this is in um, maybe book three, um, uh, and, and says, Socrates, this beautiful woman's come to town do you want to go see her? And Socrates says, heck yes, I want to go see her. Where's she at? Let's go right now and talk to her right now. And so here in Xenophon's other book, Cyrus is told there's a beautiful woman. Do you want to go see her? Absolutely not. No way. Can't do it. So um, my sense is that Cyrus um, is aware of something um, dangerous in love precisely because um, he also tells Erasmus, yeah, go hang out with her. It'll be great. You should go, you should do it. And you'll have to watch what happens to Erasmus later in the book. But uh, I think Cyrus knows good and well what's going to happen. So, There's an interesting line that I think kind of tees up uh, the rest of the book at 14. Um, and this is where, help me out with the name, Erasmus uh, is kind of arguing with Cyrus a little bit. And he says, 
So too, people who are beautiful do not compel human beings to love them or to desire what they should not. Wretched little human weaklings, however, do lack control over all their desires, and then they blame love. And then if you look at uh, chapter two, you have basically uh, Gobrus, and then the Hyrcanians, and then Tigranes, and then somebody else who are all like, we will follow you anywhere, Cyrus. We will do anything you say. And you have to like kind of wonder if the Erasmus dialogue with Cyrus wasn't just to kind of set up this kind of follow-up, which is all of these people that we've been introduced to so far in the first four uh, books, just absolutely devoting themselves to Cyrus um, with no real kind of explanation for that level of devotion that maybe we can uh, imply or infer might just be Eros. Yeah, and I think it's worth um, maybe pointing out a couple things uh, at the risk of generalizing crudely that might make it a little um, hard for us uh, modern readers to understand what's going on here and to get a feel for it. Uh, the first thing I'd want to uh, point out is that whereas we think of love, romantic love, as uh, mutual, um, that wasn't necessarily the case here, right? That uh, the love that's being discussed here could very well be unidirectional, right? So that there's one person who's the lover and one person who's the beloved, um, and in fact, there are some details in book one and also here that suggest that Cyrus is sometimes uh, the object of love, the beloved, and sometimes the lover, um, and that his real objection is to being the lover and not the beloved. So that's one thing that I think is good to think about in connection with trying to understand this. The other thing is that I think that... Um, uh, modern politics tries to make the desire to acquire something that is uh, asexual, if I could put it that way, right? That we just acquire property because uh, we're afraid of dying or something like that. But that's not the only explanation of the desire to acquire. There could be something erotic about the desire to acquire. It could be much more closely related to sexual passions than uh, modern politics gives us uh, to understand. And so the result would be that when um, Cyrus liberates the desire to acquire of the Persian commoners, for example, certainly there's some aspect of anger that he's uh, taking advantage of. But it could also be the case that this is the first sign that he's uh, involved in something erotic. And that whereas for us, it looks like, oh, he's just making a good economic or business proposition for them. Maybe for the ancients, they would see this as the thin edge of an erotic wedge, that Cyrus is becoming the beloved of the Persian commoners and of many other people. So I think Brian is, is on the right track. We want to think of this whole book, I think, as pictures of the way different people fall in love with Cyrus. Yeah. And this, this becomes interesting um, at, at, at the, in, in this conversation, Brian points out, um, or at least directs us to uh, in chapter one, because the, the whole argument between um, Erasmus and Cyrus is whether love is voluntary or involuntary. And then once that argument concludes, um, immediately, there is uh, uh, Cyrus's 
lover speaks. And so I'm just going to read very uh, quickly, if you guys don't mind. Um, this is on uh, page 145 of the Ambler. Um, first, the one uh, who once said that he was Cyrus's relative spoke. So again, the, the, the Erasmus um, uh, conversation has concluded. And now they're trying to determine, Cyrus is trying to determine whether the allies will stay with him or leave. Um, and he says, but I, king, he said, for you seem to me to have been born king by nature, no less than is the naturally born leader of the bees in the hive. For the bees obey him voluntarily. I point out that same use of the word voluntarily. That's what the previous argument was about. If he stays in a place, uh, if he stays in a place, not one leaves it. And if he goes out somewhere, not one abandons him. So remarkably ardent is their innate love of being ruled by him. And so this is the sentence that connects the previous conversation about love and voluntary, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, to politics. Because this lover of Cyrus makes this analogy and says that they obey him voluntarily. Now, this is very interesting. I have this question for you guys. So the, the conclusion of the previous conversation was that love is involuntary. That's what Cyrus said. Um, now, um, this person claims that political love of the kind that Jeff was talking about is voluntary because he says the bees obey the king voluntarily. But this is very odd because I think most people would say, I wonder if there's an error in his reasoning here, that the bees don't obey voluntarily. They ju it's just nature. And this guy even had said that the king is the naturally born leader. But then he says that the person is obeyed voluntarily at the same time. And so it's unclear to me and this is a real puzzle. Um, whether Xenophon, what is Xenophon trying to say about the involuntary character of erotic love on the one hand, and the voluntary character of political love on the other, um, by having perhaps this person misspeak? Because it seems as though, as Jeff said earlier, Cyrus understands the involuntary character of erotic love. Um, maybe he understands, or it's unclear whether he understands the voluntary or involuntary character of political love. Does, does the puzzle that I'm trying to unpack make sense? It's very hard because these people are contradicting and they're saying so. Yeah, can I, I want to just throw out another kind of comparison real quick. And that is, um, the, I, I got multiple notes in this book that's, that just says the anti-Agamemnon, right? And so, you know, Xenophon would have had to have been aware of Agamemnon. And for our readers that maybe aren't as familiar with the Iliad, um, the whole kind of conflict in the Iliad starts with uh, Agamemnon stealing uh, a woman from Achilles. And in this, the opening of this chapter, or this book, we have the exact opposite, right? We have, you know, this Susan woman who's the most beautiful woman in the world given to Cyrus. And Cyrus is like, hey, jacket guy, you go kind of take care of her. Like, I'm not, I don't want to look at her. I don't want anything. And we see this again and again and again, where he gives women to his uh, generals, to his, to his troops. And he gives, um, um, you know, wealth, whatever, whatever he captures, he gives away. And I wonder, first I want to make that point that it's the anti-Agamemnon. And I wonder what Xenophon is potentially saying by pointing this out again and again and again as it relates to Agamemnon. And the second thing I wanted to bring up is, you know, what Jeff said about lover and beloved, right? And so in that lover and beloved kind of dynamic, you know, the lover will shower the beloved with gifts, right? In order to woo them. 
but Cyrus doesn't seem like he's really trying to woo. Like he's not, I guess, is Cyrus asking for anything in return for this showering of gifts is another way to put it. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it, it makes me think that if Cyrus gives gifts, it's not because he's a lover, right? And his giving is highly qualified. Um, you know, it's like uh, the beloved giving something to the lover, knowing that the lover will give it back whenever uh, the beloved asks, right? So Cyrus is not really giving away uh, these women. Maybe, um, though, you've put your finger on uh, something really interesting, which is whether he cares about or is interested in the women, right? Um, I think Shiloh has uh, tried to make the case here that he uh, really is concerned that uh, a very beautiful woman might have an unwelcome effect on him, and he doesn't want to run that risk. Um, whether that's the same thing as uh, being attracted to the women or caring about the women is interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I have patience on this voluntary and involuntary question. Um, I wonder whether both... Um, uh, Cyrus and Erasmus aren't overstating their respective arguments. Uh, I do notice that Erasmus at least raises the possibility that there are strong and weak people, uh, and it, love might peer, appear voluntary for some and involuntary for others based on whether they're strong or weak. Uh, maybe that is the truth. It's a very strong motive, and it mostly overpowers people. It certainly overpowers Erasmus, uh, as we see in the immediate sequel. But Cyrus has stronger motives, and so uh, it, it generally doesn't overpower him. And something that uh, I just want <clears throat> to kind of point out real quick about um, Shallow bringing our attention to the bees, and also, Jeff, I think what you're kind of implying a little bit with your characterization of Cyrus's um, interest in the women is in that line 24 that Shiloh read, um, where the... Uh, who's he talking to? Is he talking to Gobris or the Hyrcanian here? I think this person hasn't been uh, named oh, yet. Hasn't been named. This yet. is so, the one that demanded the kiss from Cyrus back in book one. Ah, oh, that. Oh, this makes it even more interesting. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So here's here's what the 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 kiss the Cyrus's first boyfriend says. But I, king, he said, for you seem to me to have been born a king by nature, no less than is naturally born leader of the bees and the hive for bees obey him voluntarily. Bees don't have a male king, right? They follow a queen. Yeah. And so it's just, you know, a little interesting that we would use bees as the kind of exemplar of this um, and call a queen a king. So just throw that out there as an interesting little side bit. No, I think that's great because Cyrus is in contention with uh, women as objects of love. Right. That's, that's uh, right on the face of it, right? Yeah, we've seen that a, a couple of times for when Tigranes' wife, remember, says, I love you more to Tigranes, whenever you remember all that whole thing. One, one thing I, I'm curious about here, uh, again, and these are just crackpot theories, but I, it seems to me that um, Cyrus... Um, is not aware that political love is involuntary. In other words, he doesn't see his own longing for the love of everyone else 
And this is precisely his problem, or at least this juxtaposition brings out some tension in his character. He's aware of the dangers of erotic love because he says, well, I don't want these women to distract me, um, this beautiful woman to distract me. But then he immediately goes and seduces the love of all of his men because the question he asked them, by the way, is, this is at the bottom of page 144, he says, um, I would be ashamed to say, if you stay with me, I will pay you back. That's a very erotic sounding line. Stay with me. Would you stay with me? He's asking these people to stay with him. How many times have, you know, in, in, a, in a teenager's life has their boyfriend or girlfriend threatened to leave and they say, stay with me, stay with me. I'll give you anything. Well, that's how this goes. And so, and then they all um, say, Cyrus, we love you and we'll stay with you. And so it, it seems to me that um, he doesn't see that when you're in the position of the ruler, um, you, uh, you are subject to precisely the involuntary love that the lover in an erotic relationship is subject to. Do you see what I mean? That, that involuntary love, the same involuntary love that the lover has for the beloved, the ruler has for the people. And Cyrus sees the one, or at least has a sense for the one, but then he doesn't have a sense for the other. And that causes him all kinds of difficulties. And so it seems to me one of the things that that Cyrus's education lacks. The education of Cyrus is defective because Cyrus himself hasn't made the connection between something he intuits erotically and something which he's subject to more than anyone ever has been in all of human history politically. And that is that he sees erotically the danger of, the, of being the lover and, and someone having power over you, but he doesn't see the, that same danger politically and such that he's still subject to the very thing he's scared of. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I see two angles here that we can push on. One is um, what's involved in Cyrus's uh, references to nature when he talks about the erotic love between a man and a woman. I think uh, if I'm following your suggestion, Shiloh, he doesn't think that political love is natural in the same way that he thinks that sexual love is natural. He thinks it's by convention and therefore less powerful, right? So much less powerful that it differs as voluntary does to involuntary. Uh, so that aspect seems um, worth pushing on. And the other thing that puzzles me, I guess, is um, he, might, he, he might not be aware of the uh, damage that political love does to the ones who love politically, uh, even though he's aware of the damage that sexual love does to the ones who love sexually, namely inaction. Yeah. That's what he thinks the consequences are. And so he's encouraging this uh, political erotic love in his followers, but by his own account, it should lead them to stasis, to wanting to just stare at him. Um, and so that, that would be another thing that he doesn't understand, I guess. So do we want to turn to the other chapters, right? Shiloh, your um, claim and your kind of instinct is to say that every one of these chapters has to do somehow with erotic love. Um, for me, in some ways, the, the place to go is to the very end, to the kiss that ends uh, chapter five, where Cyrus seduces Cyaxares uh, to... Um, basically give up his claims that Cyrus has been unjust to him. But I'm also really puzzled by the Gadatas story. Gadatas is the eunuch 
Yeah. Um, and the complete surrender that Gadatas makes before <laughs> Cyrus, that, uh, that needs to be understood. So do you guys have a preference which way we go? I, I think we can touch on Gadatas fairly quickly and then go to the end. <clears throat> I mean, it, so Gadatas, I, I can maybe introduce this part. Gadatas is, um, is, ca has been castrated. And the reason he's been, ca you know, the reason he's been castrated is that the current Assyrian king was jealous of Gadatas, envious of him, jealous of him, and especially, uh, in fact, of his looks um, and his virtue and these kinds of things. And so he had him castrated. And this comes up because, um, just to complete the story, when Cyrus talks to Gobrius, he says, look, you've been wronged by the Assyrian king. Is there anyone else? And Gobrius says, well, there's this man who's been castrated by him um, because he was more handsome and, you know, these kinds of things. Um, so... Gadatus is interesting because, as Jeff says, he pledges his entire state to Cyrus um, on account of the fact that he has no heirs. And one thing that occurs to me about the significance of Gadatus is uh, this, that um, if, if, as we said earlier about chapter one and about Cyrus more generally, that Cyrus wants the love of everyone, that he wants the attachment of everyone, and we saw this even in the Tigranes chapter when he, you know, his wife apparently was more attached to Tigranes than he was to Cyrus. Um, then Gadatus is his ideal follower because Gadatus can't be attached to anyone else because Gadatus has been castrated. And so Gadatus is erotically very, very uh, handicapped. He's got a very real difficulty on his hands erotically. And so just metaphorically speaking for Cyrus, who better to be your most loyal lover than someone who can't love anyone else? Um, and so Gadatus ends up, in, I think, teaching the reader a lesson about what Cyrus longs for and how ridiculous in a certain sense Cyrus's longing is because if Cyrus were to have what he wants, which is the unconditional love and worship and of everyone in the world and have everyone stare at him alone, then there would have to not be any other competing attentions, competing attachments. And so everyone would have to be castrated. And so I encourage you, as we get toward the end of the book, to look at um, who Cyrus begins to surround himself with. Uh, it, it, it gets to be pretty scary, but um, the, the situation here is that Cyrus sees in Gadatus, or at least Xenophon sees in Gadatus, a lesson that um, Cyrus wants everyone to be attached to him such that they would have to not love their mothers, not love their wives, not love their children. And I'll, I'll say one thing and then I'll shut up. It's interesting that when um, Gadatus, when Cyrus says, Gadatus, come on campaign with me, Gadatus says to him, can I bring my mother? Um, this is Xenophon saying, even he can't be as attached to you as you want. He wants to bring his mother. He's, he can't have a wife. He can't have kids, but he can have a mother. What are you going to do about that, Cyrus? The Cyrus doesn't understand these limits. Yeah, I just wanted to touch on the, the fact that Cyrus's desires, we have to infer, right? Like there's, and, 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 that, and Shiloh is doing that. Uh, and I just wanted to point out, I think you're absolutely right. But I think that it's interesting that we should point out for folks that haven't read that, like, we don't we don't get like a um, dear diary entry from Cyrus at any point. So it's but it's very interesting because Xenophon kind of leaves it out. You know, we get motivations for a lot of his interlocutors 
and those motivations are kind of brought to the fore. But the stuff about like, what does Cyrus want is not super textual, right? Like, right. or am I, yeah. So it's just interesting to kind of read this book called The Education of Cyrus. It's all about Cyrus. It's, it's about Cyrus's actions. Um, there's plenty of dialogue um, with Cyrus and his interlocutors, but there's, I, I don't think I've seen a moment yet where he's like, this is what I want and this is why I'm doing this. So it's really interesting as we kind of walk through this book that we have to kind of be on the alert for, you know, where that's implied. Yeah, I've even come across suggestions that this book has to be read twice because when you start reading it, you know, you get so little of Cyrus's inner voice, but Cyrus comes across as such a successful military leader and such a hero, right? You think, oh yeah, all is good in the world of Cyrus. I want to be like Cyrus, right? Who wouldn't? Uh, when you get to the end, as Shiloh has already kind of foreshadowed here, uh, you start to notice some pretty horrific things. And then you say to yourself, wait a minute, I've got to go back to the beginning. And you reinterpret a lot of the things that happened at the beginning in light of what happened at the end. And that takes the place of the uh, revelatory inner uh, monologue that we don't get, right? The insight into what Cyrus is thinking that we don't get. Um, so I think Brian's absolutely right. And I think the remedy and Xenophon's art in some sense is this kind of structural encouragement to read the book twice. Yeah. Um, but we're only doing this podcast once uh, for each book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the other thing, Brian, that I think reinforces your point is that you're absolutely right that Cyrus um, doesn't ever explicitly say what he wants. And I think that that's both a device, as Jeff says, to get us to read the book twice, but it's also an indication of a deeper thing, which is that Cyrus doesn't know himself. He doesn't know himself. And of course, Socrates, above all, sought to know himself and know his longings, know his desires, know his attachments and their nature and the effect that they had on him. And so it would make sense that Cyrus can't say out loud what he wants because he doesn't know it. And it's only given to the reader to know it once they read the book twice and can unpack Cyrus's own longings, which Cyrus is not self-conscious of. Uh, and that's his, perhaps his greatest problem. And that's what a Socratic education does is it makes you self-conscious of those longings that are not expressed. Yeah, so do we want to go to the Cyaxerxes dialogue and kind of chop that up a little bit? It is, it is an interesting, interesting return of, of Cyaxerxes to the narrative. Yeah, this is in chapter five, right? So this is how uh, book five ends. And uh, my recollection is it goes something like this, that uh, Cyrus decides that he needs to send for Cyaxerxes, uh, that now is the time when Cyaxerxes should rejoin them uh, in front of the walls of Babylon. Uh, and he probably does that because uh, he knows there's going to be some trouble with Cyaxerxes, and now he feels like he's in a situation to handle it. And Cyaxerxes has been passed by this additional Persian force uh, that, uh, that Cyrus sent for. Um, and Cyaxerxes had the opportunity to use this Persian force if he wanted to, but they were so costly, he didn't want to keep them around, right? So he sends them on to Cyrus and he follows. And by the time he shows up, there's him and there's everybody who was in his sight when Cyrus first left him a couple books ago. So he's got a handful of cavalry, basically. And he's facing Cyrus with all these Persians and all these allies on horse and on foot and archers and targeteers. 
And the inequality between them is so striking and such a reversal that Cyaxares weeps. And Cyrus takes him aside and says, all right, we gotta, let's, let's talk about this. And uh, he says, tell me what I've done to wrong you. And uh, he, in, he engages in this kind of questioning that really tries to lead Cyaxares to say that Cyrus has done nothing but good for him. But Cyaxares uh, persists and makes the case, alienation of affection. You have made people love you more than me. And then in this very puzzling turn, and I don't quite understand how the case so powerfully, Cyaxares lets it drop. Um, or what it is exactly that makes him let it drop, Saixaris finally relents. Cyrus says, can we just put this off and we'll resume the question of whether I've been unjust to you later. Saixaris says, yeah, we can do that. And then he kisses him in full view of all the troops, therefore healing the breach, apparently. Uh, and they all ride off together. And Cyrus lets the Medes ride behind Saixaris, right? He gives permission for that. Uh, and that's, that's the end of Saixaris' um, significant involvement in the campaign or in the book, really. So do you guys understand what happened there? Well, I'll do the, I'll do the tactical setup real quick, and then maybe Shiloh can do the heavy lifting <laughs> in understanding the erotic portion. Uh, but it's just like in the last time that you know Cyrus kind of knew that Saixaris was going to be pissed off at him. Uh, before Cyaxerxes' envoys got there, he had sent for that Persian army. And now uh, Cyrus directs that Cyaxerxes comes, which is the opening line. After this was completed, he sent to Cyaxerxes and directed him to come to the camp so that they might deliberate, right? He does hedge later on in that paragraph and is like, well, you know, if, you know, if he doesn't want to come, that's cool. But it opens with directing. Uh, and I got to wonder, like, the how much Cyrus knew that the Persian army, you know, was on the way or was close. So again, like Cyrus has this massive tactical advantage now. If Cyaxerxes does want to start something, he's like, okay, that's cool. I've got 40,000 additional Persians at, you know, that if you want to start something, we can start something. So I just wanted to throw that out there before we got into, you know, the more important stuff that I'm not <laughs> going to be as comfortable with. So, <laughs> no, I think you make a very good point. And Xenophon labors that point too. He's like, and there was this Persian army and it was, you know, um, with respect to the question of the erotic character, I mean, <clears throat> there's this wonderful line um, where um, Saxari Sy says, and this is on page 173, parenthetical 30, um, this line really brings together the theme that we were talking about earlier, which is romantic love, what we, at least the moderns, would call romantic love, and its similarity to political love, which Jeff had very astutely pointed out uh, for the ancients was one, but we have separated. Here, you can see Xenophon bringing these two things together. So at parenthetical 30, um, Saxaris, in arguing with Cyrus, says the following, what about this? which human beings long for most of all and attend to most dearly. If someone is so attentive to your wife that he makes her love himself rather than you, would you, would he delight you by this good deed? Far from it. I th far from it. I think, and I know well that in acting like this, he would be unjust to you to the highest degree. 
And so Cyaxares gives this as an example of what he feels um, when Cyrus has taken his men from him, his entire army from him. He feels as though a man has come along and taken his wife. And so you can see uh, here is exactly um, what Jeff was talking about earlier. Cyaxares enjoyed being the beloved of his people. And now, or the lover of his people, it's unclear. Uh, maybe it's a bit of both. And now um, he's not either the lover or the beloved of his people. He's some, I don't know, some, uh, you know, lackey for Cyrus or something like this. And so uh, the interesting thing is that Cyrus is so um, infuriated by this. Cyrus, um, I mean, you can hear the way he would respond. He says, by the gods, uncle, if I ever gratified you before in anything, gratify me now in what I ask. For the time being, stop blaming me. This indicates to me that Cyrus understands that he, that in other words, that Cyrus is like, oh, wow, this, you know, that would, if Cyrus put himself in Cyaxares's position and this had happened to Cyrus, I mean, Cyrus would just, he would be depressed and go, I don't know, he'd hang himself, he'd jump off a bridge. And I think he understands this. And the reason I think he understands this is, remember I told you back when Cyrus was kissed um, to watch for the other times in the book when Cyrus cries. Well, it's said here that Cyrus's eyes fill with tears. This is on page 170. Um, when Cyaxares is talking about what he's done, uh, it says at the top, um, when Cyaxares is talking about he, how he feels. And as he was saying this, Cyrus was still uh, more overcome by tears, and Cyaxares was overcome by tears, so that he also led Cyrus's eyes to be filled with tears. So Cyrus feels something emotionally here that he's not aware of, that I don't think he understands. And so this is, this is what's brought out here, it seems to me. Yeah, when I, when I read that line, that first part, uh, you know, uh, the, the line 30 about the wife, uh, I made a little note that, that on the competitive nature of Eros, you know, and, and I, that made me think back to all the competitions that Cyrus put on from his troops or, you know, that made his troops kind of compete. And um, were they competing, do you think, uh, for, you know, kind of primacy in, in the plunder? Or were they competing for Cyrus's love? Yeah, that's, uh, that for me is, is kind of the decisive question. It seems like there are two levels here. What I'd call the, um, the economic logic of empire, right? Which is that... Um, as long as there are places to conquer, the pie gets bigger, and there can be apparently a positive sum game, right? A common good. You get spoil, I get spoil. We divide it according to some principle, like uh, some principle of justice, right? Whoever fought best or whatever it is. Um, but there is, there's always more goods, and they can be divided, so we each get something. But then on the love front, it's not clear to me that there's any of some game going on. It seems like it's a zero-sum game. And maybe Cyrus's uh, tears indicate that he has a moment of recognizing this, that love for him means no love for anybody else, right? And so if uh, the men are competing to um, you know, be visible to Cyrus, right, to shine in front of Cyrus, uh, if they're competing as Cyrus's um, 
lovers, right, to stand out for him. Uh, maybe there's really no common good between them either, right? Cyrus has a finite amount of attention and time, and it's got to go to someone, right? So, uh, you know, the expansionist logic of empire might say that there's a way to make this work temporarily as long as you have an enemy to conquer. But the erotic logic of empire looks like it's much more uh, demanding and stringent and harsh. Cyrus is winning means everybody else loses. One of Cyrus's men winning means Cyrus's other men lose. And that I think has to lead to bad emotions like envy. Yeah, and this is why Gadotus is so important because at least ostensibly with him, no one would lose because he can't love anyone else, but they do, but that's still, even that's not true. And Cyrus doesn't, I, I think, doesn't see that. Or maybe, as you say, he has a flash here where he does see it and he doesn't want to confront it. So you, you said earlier, he puts it off and he just says, look, let's talk about it later. Maybe there's a sense in which he's been enlightened. The education of Cyrus has taken, has leveled up here, yet he refuses to fully grapple with, acknowledge and become self-conscious of this problem. And so he just says, I'm, I'm not going to see it. I can't see it. It's too painful. So do we just, I wanted to just follow up with a quick question. Do we, you know, we've talked a ton about like the idea of love, um, and I think that I think that it, everything that you guys have said about that is 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 true as I read it. Um, but there's this interesting there's an interesting more mechanical piece to it, right? And Jeff was just talking about the economics piece versus the arrows piece, and I, it, it's not purely one or the other. I think is is maybe a way to say it. So while we're focusing on arrows in this uh, in this book there is a mechanical piece that's still getting drawn out, right? We talked about the tactics around the Persians. You know, another interesting line was back in chapter three, um, around line 47, and he's putting, you know, all of his troops kind of in order to march, and um, Xenophon writes, now Cyrus was careful to do this, for it seemed to him to be amazing if each mere mechanic knows the names of the tools of his art and a doctor knows the names of all the tools and drugs he uses, but a general should be so foolish as to not know the names of the leaders beneath him. And yet necessity compels him to use them as tools when he wishes to take something, guard something, inspire confidence or cause fear. And if ever he should wish to honor someone, it seemed to him fitting to call him by name. So while there's definitely an, a, a very large Eros component to Cyrus's character and to this book, there's also still just this kind of, tactical operational kind of how to get stuff done that is still somehow part of Cyrus's character. But we can ask the question, I guess, is, you know, is Cyrus's education learning how to do the military art because he sees that as a route to um, acquire more love um, or are they kind of, is it two separate things that are embodied in, in how Cyrus is approaching you know, his, his empire. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that passage up. That was the last passage on my must hit list for this podcast. And uh, I think that this thing that you're calling the, the military art, right, the way of using names in order to get things done might very well be rooted in Eros, just like everything else in this chapter. Now, I can't quite make the connection. Maybe we have enough time to, to push into that, but let me just make this observation. Um, there's uh, somebody who uh, apparently Cyrus loved when he was young, 
and we get his name in this book. It's Erasmus, and he is assigned to guard the Susan woman. He falls in love with the Susan woman, and Cyrus will use that. There is also someone who loves Cyrus. Uh, he's a Mede, but we don't get his name. He claimed to be Cyrus's relative back in book one. Could Xenophon follow the same practice in naming or not naming characters that Cyrus follows somehow in naming uh, human beings that he wants to use? My theory would be something like this. If somebody is named in the book, The Education of Cyrus, he is somehow a tool of Cyrus. Until he's named, he's not a tool of Cyrus yet. Um, this might be a little complicated because the unnamed uh, lover of Cyrus uh, is nonetheless behaving in, uh, in Cyrus's interests, you know, and he's been doing that for a while. But there seems to be something going on with names. So I suspect that this technique of using names is also an erotic technique. Can, can we fill that out? Does that seem plausible to you all? It seems plausible. I, I've never thought of it before. One, here, I have a question for you then. One thing that occurs to me is that the Susan woman has not been named, but she will in the next book. And the husband is named, but we haven't yeah. seen him yet. Yeah, and he'll Could, be used. <laughs> right. Abradatus is already in, in uh, Cyrus's power, but the Susan woman is not. Right. Yeah. That would be my suggestion uh, just on the face of it. But I, I haven't really worked this out to be sure that it's true. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's great. And I think that that, it, it would explain a lot from just a narrative standpoint, because a lot of times characters have been introduced and it's just like this dude. And then you get like a few more pages or a couple more chapters. And it's like, by the way, this dude's name is this. And you're like, why didn't you tell me that when you introduced him? Because now I'm trying to figure out who's talking and what are they doing and like who they are. And you waited either three pages or three chapters or three books to tell me their name. Xenophon, you're such a crappy writer. You're so much worse than Plato, who gives us names right at the beginning. Socrates colon. I went down to the virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think this is part of Xenophon's art. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that I think that's definitely something that we should kind of be on the lookout there. Um, I think it's a really good point. Um, was there any other, we're getting kind of to the end of our time. Were there any other must read passages for either of you guys that you wanted to bring out? I think that's it for me. How about you Shiloh? Anything? Um, that seems, um, to be all for me. I, I think one, one just note that I would point out one thing we didn't talk about that's interesting, I think is that there's this Caducian, um, leader who goes rogue at one point and gets himself killed because he wants to do, I think that Xenophon puts it, he wants to do something splendid and he makes a mistake. And I always wonder what the connection of that is in the grand narrative about love. And it just seems to me that this man wants to be, he, he you know, in a way Cyrus is longing for love and the, you know, the, the greatness that he, he possesses and the, the way his men speak about him. Inevitably, at some point, that's going to inspire someone else to say, well, geez, I want that. Why can't I go get that love? And so somebody else goes to try to do something great to get the love. And so I think this, this um, scene just reinforces what you guys were saying uh, about there being a finite amount of love. And Cyrus has a real problem in that um, 
what's to stop someone else from saying, why should he get all of it? Why can't I? And maybe that person's an idiot and can't do it like this guy who goes rogue. But nonetheless, how do you, how, how in an empire would you deal with that? The problem of revolt or the problem of other great men uh, arising? That's, that's helpful because it also connects for me a little more closely uh, the respect in which Eros uh, being a lover is static right? You're not supposed to go off the reservation. And Cyrus has started since, I think sometime in book four, giving instructions that people who leave the camp are to be killed and people who go off on their own are to be punished, right? So there's a really strong draconian even uh, attempt to keep everybody together. And that might be, uh, have something to do with this static side of being a lover and wanting to gaze at the beloved. And, and something to kind of build on what Shiloh said, because uh, I haven't read this thing yet. So I haven't, I have never read this before and I have not read past what we're reading today. But what you were talking about Shiloh um, made me think of and wonder if in the future chapters, uh, a reason things go kind of haywire is if the people that are kind of last to Cyrus's party feel they need to compete for his love even stronger than the people that have been there and proven themselves like the Persians and then the Medes and then the Armenians and the Chaldeans and the Hyrcanians. And, you know, when you get to like the 12th tribe that he, you know, decides to make their ally is that, you know, 12th or 13th or 14th tribal leader going to go, I got to do something really crazy to get this guy's love. And is that what is setting up um, a, competitiveness that will lead to unpleasant kind of results. Yeah. Yeah. And as he conquers the world, there's less and less opportunity as more people are ingested into his army, there's less and less opportunity to show yourself. So what do you do when you're sitting on the top of the entire world and you have all these people who you've trained to show their virtue, but there's no longer any battles to fight. Who are they going to turn on you, each other, what are you going to do? Well, you need the Persian education, but you, you screwed that up because you don't have that anymore. So. Well, I think that's a, a good point to end on guys. So thanks a ton uh, listeners. We hope you're enjoying this. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter at combat We're also on Instagram, Twitter, and the Facebooks. So Shiloh, thanks a lot for coming back. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks a ton. Yeah. Thank you both. Thanks, Brian. Thanks Shiloh. See you guys later.